0: Welcome to Created Terrain, a program of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. I'm Cal Beisner. And I'm David LeGates, and today we're going to
1: continue our discussion with one of the landmark documents of the Cornwall Alliance, the Cornwall Declaration on Environmental Stewardship. And today we're going to discuss the section on our beliefs, which begin with our common Judeo-Christian heritage that teaches us that the following theological and anthropological principles become the foundation for our environmental stewardship. The first one, of course, is God, who is the creator of all things, rules over all, and deserves our worship and our adoration.
0: And scripture teaches this so very, very clearly. We could spend a great deal of time on it, but we don't really need to because it's something that is so widely understood. Even outside the the Christian tradition, all theistic religions recognize that God is the creator and that uh, his creation reflects his own genius, his wisdom, his goodness. But we have Psalm 19, for example, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, night to night shows forth knowledge. Even goes on to say that there is no language in which the words are not heard. And this is metaphorical speech. But the point is that the creation itself reveals the goodness of the creator. One of the things, though, that is sort of an implication of this that I think is very important for environmental discussions is the what what Christian thought calls the creator creature distinction, and of course, this is shared with Jewish thought as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He couldn't create himself; that would have mean it meant that he had to exist before he existed. So clearly, he is not the universe. He is not the creation, and it's very very common for much of the environmental movement to be rooted in a worldview that denies this creator-creature distinction in one of two different ways. On the one hand, you have a worldview that is materialistic, naturalistic, matter and energy and motion is all that is. There is no personal divine creator outside of the universe. The other frequent basis for much environmental thought is what we would call pantheism, where God is the universe, or sometimes this comes in the form of panentheism, God is to the universe as the soul is to the body, or sometimes also spiritism or animism. There are lots of gods, lots of spirits, and they inhabit trees and rivers and mountains and stones and things like that. Either of these fails to distinguish the Creator from the creature. The result in either instance is to drive us toward idolatry, toward worshiping the creature instead of the Creator. And the Apostle Paul warns that that leads to irrationality, to what we would perhaps even call insanity. He says when people— deny the Creator, they begin to worship the creature instead of the Creator. And then God gives them over to depraved minds, thinking themselves to be wise. They become fools and are just lost and confused in vain imaginations. So, this belief that God, the Creator of all things, rules over all and deserves our worship and adoration provides us with the fundamental worldview that enables us to think rationally about his creation. This follows from the simple fact that if matter and energy are all that exist, then there is no such thing as thinking. When two billiard balls meet on a table, they don't sit down and have a cup of tea and say, all right, which direction do you want to go and and what velocity? And come to an agreement about that. No, they just exchange energy and ricochet off of each other, and that's it. If all of reality is just like a bunch of billiard balls, atoms, subatomic particles bouncing off of each other, there's no thinking going on. And if that's the case, then even what we think is thinking is not thinking, it is illusion. And that means that we don't have any reason to believe anything because there is no such thing as reason. C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly in a chapter in his book Miracles, the chapter called The Problem of Naturalism. He explained, naturalism is the argument that there is no such thing as argument, which of course is self-refuting. So, if we want to retain rationality, if we want to retain reason, and thus, if we want to retain science, we have to start with God the creator of all things. Now, the second belief listed in the Cornwall Declaration is that the earth, and with it all the cosmos, reveals its creator's wisdom and is sustained and governed by his power and loving kindness. David, you're a geographer as well as a climatologist I was talking with you earlier this morning about your saying that history is about time and geography is about space. And you pointed out that part of what you see in geography, in the study of geography, is why things are where they are. Why are cities here and there and so on? I'd love for you to expand, really approaching this from your background as a geographer, On how all of the cosmos, the geography around us, both the the man made geography and the natural geography, reveals God's wisdom and is sustained and governed by his power and loving kindness.
1: What we study in geography is that things are where they are for a reason. Chicago, as I mentioned, is located where it is because it's the farthest into the continent you could get from the Atlantic Ocean by sea. So it made sense that there was a city there, and lo and behold, there is a major city located there. So there are reasons why all these things happen. And I think the same thing happens in God's world as well, that things happen not by random chance, things happen for a reason. Things are located where they are for a reason. We know, for example, in the physical world that resources exist in certain places because the processes that would have created them existed there. And by the same token, God's loving kindness provides resources in the places where they are needed.
0: And one of the things that jumps out to me in this is that this cosmos reveals the creator's wisdom. And that it's sustained and governed by his power and loving kindness. The 650-pound gorilla in the room in terms of environmental issues in the last 20 to 30 years has been climate change. And what many people are trying to tell us is that when we, through our burning of fossil fuels and a variety of other activities like making concrete or raising livestock, when we increase carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere from about 280 parts per million, which it was around the mid-18th century, to uh, around 420 parts per million now, so it's up roughly 50%, we are in danger of causing really catastrophic changes to climate around the world. And that makes me just wonder about how do you reconcile that thinking, 280 parts per million of CO2 rising to 420 parts per million of CO2 causing catastrophe. How do you reconcile that kind of thinking with the idea that the creator is wise? He made a creation about which he said at the end, it was very good and the creator sustains and governs his cosmos. So it seems to me that when we say this, we're actually being very inconsistent with the notion of the creator's wisdom. A change in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from 280 parts per million to 420 parts per million still leaves it at only about 42 thousandths of 1%. So. If you're talking about carbon dioxide going from 28 to 42 thousandths of 1%, you might imagine a sports stadium with a seating capacity of 100,000. This would mean that roughly 40 seats were occupied by carbon dioxide. And you, you just have to wonder how much of an effect on the whole can that make? I like to illustrate it this way. If I were an architect and I designed a building so that If I leaned on a wall, all of the feedback mechanisms in the building multiplied the strain produced by my body weight leaning on the wall until finally the whole building collapsed. Nobody would say, oh, what a great architect. What a wise architect that guy was. Uh, No, he'd say, what a fool. Well, similarly, if we're going to say that increasing CO2 from 28 to 42 thousandths of 1% of the atmosphere is going to cause catastrophe, you really have to question the wisdom of the God who made, designed, and sustains that climate system. Instead, what I think we should recognize is that God, by his wisdom, made a world, a cosmos that is. Robust, resilient, self correcting, and that he himself promised in Genesis 8 21, for example, that as long as heaven and earth endure, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. So, the sort of catastrophist predilection that is so common in much environmentalism is really quite inconsistent with the biblical Christian understanding of the Creator. Another of our beliefs, David, and I'd like you to expand on this for us, is that men and women were created in God's image and given a privileged place among creatures and commanded to exercise stewardship over the earth. And for this exercise, we are and we have to be free to act as moral agents so that freedom is an essential condition of responsible action. Can you show us how that can either be really affirmed by our environmental stewardship or sometimes undermined by environmental policies?
1: One of the things we have come across recently in environmentalism has been that humans are somehow equal to, or in some cases, subservient to the rest of creation that we've gotten into the idea of ecocide, that humans are killing the environment and that somehow chimpanzees, asparagus, flora, fauna are all somehow to be protected by humans and anything we do that affects them is bad. And, And even recently, there's been a discussion in academia that spoons and rocks and mountains and inanimate objects have consciousness. When you turn back to the Bible, you understand that people and humans are given a special place in God's creation. In particular, there are bodied people such as humans, there are disembodied people such as spirits, but these are on a higher plane than the rest of creation. A recent evangelical climatologist argued that God's second greatest gift to mankind is all of creation. In Genesis all of creation was brought to Adam by God, and Adam named everything. At the end, he decided it was not sufficient. He needed something else. And so mm-hmm. what I've argued is that the second greatest gift God gave us are other people. And yeah. I think that's why, in particular, that we are creating the image of God. We are separate and distinct from creation. We are given a charge to be good stewards of God's ownership. God is the owner. We are the stewards of his environment. But at the same time, we are elevated above the rest of creation, and we're not to place ourselves on the same level or even below it.
0: Yeah, I was really surprised myself to read in Catherine Hayhoe's book, Saving Us, this notion that the creation itself is god's second greatest gift to us or to even himself very very clearly genesis teaches very differently from that and it's to me it's ironic that one who like her professes to be an evangelical christian doesn't grasp this while previously a conservative not an orthodox but a conservative jew Dr. Julian Simon, an expert on the economics of demography, wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource. And that was all about how human beings are the ultimate resource in the world, not minerals, not plants, not animals, not sunlight or anything else. Human beings are the ultimate resource. This is the sort of privileged place that God has given us Among creatures, and we can't just treat privilege as some sort of a a wicked thing. You know, we hear now about white privilege. Privilege in this instance means that God has given a special blessing, a special place to someone. And who are we to decry the gifts of God? But we are moral agents. And for us, freedom is an essential condition of responsible action. And yet a lot an awful lot of the environmental movement really restricts human freedom and undermines responsible action. Can you give us some examples of how that happens? There are policies
1: that many socialist totalitarian regimes invoke on their, population. In a free society that has the ability to make decisions regarding what they choose to do and how they choose to be good stewards of their environment, totalitarian regimes obviously have a single-minded goal, and it's usually not biblical stewardship. They have other agendas to be set. Mm. And so many cases, stewardship of the environment is not stewardship in to protect the environment. It's not stewardship in the environment to use it to God's glory, or to assisting others. It's to further the cause of the state and to further the totalitarian regime. When freedom is lost, you sort of lose the framework as to really what are we focusing on. And to whomever you lose that freedom is where the goals come from.
0: A very concrete example of that, I think, is what happened with the Aral Sea under the old Soviet Union. There. A political goal of the old Soviet Union was to maximize grain production in geographic areas way upstream from the Aral Sea. And so the government actually did a variety of different major geoengineering works that reversed the flow of some rivers to provide irrigation for those places. The result was that the Aral Sea lost some 75% of its water, a huge percentage of its surface area, and that meant that large areas—this was the largest inland salt sea in the uh, world—large areas of land became denuded and heavily salted and dried out terribly, and then prevailing winds— Uh, blew that salty dust all over regions going hundreds of miles downwind to the east and just obliterated the vegetative fertility of those areas. This was an instance where you had government imposing a particular policy that kept the people who could have been private owners of property there from maintaining that property in a way that kept it environmentally, ecologically healthy, and instead really harmed it quite greatly.
1: God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, represents God's design for shalom, or sometimes it's interpreted peace, Mm -hmm. and is the supreme rule of all conduct for which personal or social prejudices must not be substituted. Shalom in this context doesn't necessarily mean not war. Do you want to
0: expand on that? Shalom is a tremendously rich word in biblical Hebrew. It denotes, as you said, not just the absence of war, but it denotes wholeness. It denotes not just sort of material prosperity, but spiritual prosperity, relational prosperity as well a blessedness of relationships among people. And this shalom is what comes as people live in consistency with, in accordance with the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, and of course, the two great commandments that sum up the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. If we all lived that way, we would indeed have shalom. We would have wonderful, wonderful life. This law, God's law, is the supreme rule of all conduct. And as you read, we shouldn't be substituting personal or social prejudices for that. I think this is something that we often see, again, in much of the environmental movement, where people will judge others as doing evil, sinful things because, for example, they use disposable diapers or they don't recycle their styrofoam or they use plastic straws or they prefer to get energy from coal or natural gas or oil than from sun or wind. And right away, you wind up, Saying some sinner because he's doing this, whereas God's word doesn't address that. And there may be arguments pro and con about the prudence of this or that activity, but it's really a variety of legalism, a heresy of substituting man's laws for God's laws in making moral judgments when we elevate all kinds of different environmental concerns to the level of definitions of right and wrong, of sin and righteousness. So this is one reason why those who put together the Cornwall Declaration said, let's recognize that it's God's law that defines sin, not man's law.
1: And by disobeying God's law, humankind brought upon itself moral and physical corruption as well as a divine condemnation in the form of curse on the earth and since the fall into sin people have ignored the creator harmed their neighbors and defiled the good creation in fact in isaiah 24 5 it says the earth is also defiled by its inhabitants Mm -hmm. for they have violated laws altered statutes and broke the everlasting covenant. It doesn't say the earth is defiled by its inhabitants because they have polluted the land. They have failed to take care of biblical stewardship. It says they have violated my laws, altered my statutes, and broke our everlasting covenant.
0: It's a fascinating exercise to go through the various different prophets in the Old Testament and look at what they say pollutes the land many people, even in the Christian environmental movement, will say prophets spoke against environmental degradation. Read, for example, the first 19 chapters of the prophet Jeremiah and list all the different things that he mentions as polluting the land, as bringing God's judgment on the earth. There are things like murder, adultery, divorce, child sacrifice, idolatry, breaking the Sabbath. Never once does he mention something like overgrazing or failing to rotate crops or using too much fertilizer or anything like that. Nothing of that sort is mentioned. And so, we need to recognize that it is our disobedience to the laws God gave us in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall not make for yourself any idol to worship. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your parents, your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. As we disobey these laws, we bring God's judgment on the world. And so if we want to see clean, healthy, beautiful environments, probably the most important thing we can do is to see more and more people brought to faith in Christ and then by the Holy Spirit working in them to sanctify them more and more obedience to God's moral law. We know that
1: we are sinful
0: people. And as a result, God
1: in his mercy has not abandoned us. But in fact, he has created order and acted throughout history to restore us through various dispensations to fellowship with him and through their stewardship to enhance the beauty and the fertility of the earth. If God should have condemned us to everlasting death, but he gave his son so that we could be reunited with him, shouldn't we therefore be good stewards
0: of his environment? Yes, absolutely. And this is actually why I believe and I discussed this in a monograph that I wrote called What is the Most Important Environmental Task Facing American Christians Today? I believe that educating people as to the truths and the falsehoods about the environment, but especially about the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the most important environmental task that we have. As long as people are in rebellion against God, are alienated from him, they're not going to understand his world the way he designed it to be understood and used. But when they are reconciled to him, then they begin by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them to live in accord with his moral law and the scriptures teach us that that brings blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bears its fruit in its due season, and its leaf will not wither. This is why promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important work of the Cornwall Alliance for the stewardship of creation.
1: And as such, human beings, therefore, are called to be fruitful. And this call implies a serious commitment to fostering intellectual, moral, and religious habits and practices that are required for free economies and genuine care for the environment. If we are going to be true followers of Christ— then shouldn't we be true stewards of his environment as well? And when I say true stewards, I mean addressing real issues, not chasing after imaginary ones.
0: Absolutely. And that's essentially why the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation exists. We want to promote true stewardship of God's earth, which is promoted primarily by seeing people reconciled to Christ. The dominion mandate of Genesis 1.28 God blessed human beings and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, is to be fulfilled by means of the great commission of Matthew 28. Go into all nations and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you.
1: You have been listening to Created to Reign, a podcast of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Come and learn more about us at cornwallalliance.org. Thank you again. And until next time, may God bless you.